Howdy. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on all the socials. We are at History and Film on Instagram and HIF Pod on Twitter. My personal Twitter account is at TrackNerds, and you can always email me at Simmons at TrackNerds.com. Enjoy the show. Okay, this is another film that doesn't necessarily belong in a history podcast, although it does get into some historical figures and Americans living in Paris in the 1920s, but it's also just one of my favorite movies from the last couple decades, and honestly, after dealing with a lot of the heavier topics we've dealt with this season, from you know abortion to female genital mutilation to terrorism, I just wanted to end with a fun episode it's just been kind of a heavy season and a heavy project and this was like honestly when i was putting together the list of movies i wanted to cover for this project back in 2017 during the spring of 2017 i very very early on decided i wanted to end with midnight in paris and (laughs) that's just kind of never never left and i was looking at the total number of movies again we're calling this episode 100 but by my count it's actually about the 120th film we've discussed with when you look at the bonus episodes and and things but again i just wanted to end on a fun note and we can talk here at the end of the episode about what our plans are for the future of this podcast but let's go ahead and get into midnight in paris and the journey of Owen Wilson's character Gil as he is yes. on a vacation with his fiance and her parents in Paris and just kind of joyfully wandering the streets of this beautiful city. I think this is a good movie to end on because it deals directly with the golden age fallacy, which I have found myself in the past kind of falling prey to. And, you know, you see it all the time. People say, oh, you know, I, I wish I could have lived, you know, 2020 sucks. I wish I lived in, in, you know, back in the 80s again, or I wish I'd lived in the 40s or, or, you know, in the case of Owen Wilson, he wants to live in Paris in the 20s. Right. And uh, just this kind of idea that the present sucks. So, you know, better to go back to a time that I think is is better. Right. Or I want to make America great again, implying it was better at a past time. Right. But just, you know, and the, I don't know, that it, it kind of, uh, romanticizes that idea at the beginning but then he does learn at the end it's like no you know what actually maybe make the best of the present and make that the golden age yeah everybody always thought the past was better no matter when they were lived and the other thing i always think about too is and i get this too if you read say you know 19th century novels and we always have this this it's almost become a cliche that the current generation in charge just talks about how the younger generation is just a mess and will never be good right They've been having that conversation for thousands of years, and and yes. you know you know read, you know, read uh, again the what well, always stuck out for me was you know reading War and Peace and Tolstoy's characters are talking about ah darn kids these days as they're dealing with you know the Napoleonic Wars and stuff and yeah it's just yeah and and it, and it's you know watching movies that are you know set in in the past like you do kind of at least I do find yourself thinking stuff like that like oh man you know watching the right stuff wouldn't it be cool to like have lived and and been a part of like the space race or you know just anything right because you're looking at the highlight reel and not the actual day-to-day life yes yeah and and like they say in the movie you know oh yeah you you guys don't uh they don't have antibiotics here (laughs) i was just gonna say yeah that's that's kind of at the end owen kind of realizes 
yeah, they don't have antibiotics. Like, it's just, yeah. And so this is the first time I've ever actually done the research, you know, as far as on some of these characters, which, you know, most of them you're kind of familiar with. It's kind of just, honestly, this is just them having fun with the past and, you know, him getting to meet these characters just because. But I was doing the research. Yes, all of these people were in Paris in the 20s. Like, it's, it, they didn't just, they yeah. didn't fake that. And I kind of, narrowed it down though it's it my best guess as to when he's going back to every night is roughly april of 1926 because that's when dolly okay. first comes to paris and by the end of 1926 the fitzgeralds had gone back to the united states okay now it also does seem like even though he's going back in a series of consecutive nights but they do we do kind of get the feeling that even though it's the next night for him, maybe it's a week later, maybe it's a month later in Paris. Does that seem right. probably right? Yeah, because every time he goes back, it's like a couple weeks worth of time has passed okay. at least. Because there's like, you know, like he goes back and it's like, oh, okay, this person's like, you know, moved to, like they talk about, oh, uh, Hemingway went to Africa. He's gone to Africa, right. So, but that's still probably right though, because uh, they, Hemingway mentions only having one book out because... He'd even say, right. oh, you like my book? Singular. Right. But that times out, too, right. because his first novel came out in in early 1926, and his second one came out in October of 1926. So the fact that he has one book out kind of then confirms my theory of April 1926, yeah. give or take. And I, I don't know about you, but Hemingway is my favorite character in this movie. <laughs> well, he's they made Hemingway the comic relief in a comedy mm-hmm. <laughs> by making him so serious that it's laughable. Yeah. Yes. And I love it. And I couldn't find anything. So basically, I can't imagine this is accurate, but they basically have the character of Hemingway talk in prose. And yeah, be, but in the way that Hemingway writes, which is kind of this dry simplicity, but also poetic. And I always say, yeah. I've had a love hate relationship with Hemingway's novels where they feel a little slow when I'm reading them. But then a year or two goes by, and I'm like, oh, I need to read some Hemingway because they are so powerful. But mm-hmm. anyway, so let's let's kind of talk about the the story it, itself here. Well, I was just gonna. So there is the quote from Hemingway when when Owen Wilson's character first meets him, and he's telling him about his book, and he says it's set in a nostalgia shop, and then Hemingway's like, "What's a nostalgia shop?" He said, "It's a it's a place where they sell stuff that's old." And then he says, "Is that terrible?" And Hemingway says, no subject is terrible if the story is true, if the prose is clean and honest, and if it affirms courage and grace under pressure. And I thought that that quote works so well for the subjects that we cover because we have seen that the subject, it doesn't matter. It's how you tell the story, for instance. And and these are the the two, like, biggest examples of this that I could think of. You know, you have, like, uh, we did the movie Evita, right, Mm. where the subject is arguably – a, a fascinating subject. Right. She had a fascinating life and, you know, she did a lot of important stuff and she had an exciting life and it was important. Um, but the way that they told the story, the movie sucked. Right. Versus you take something like Pather Pinchali that is about nothing, but the way that they tell the story is so moving and powerful. It's so, you know, right. well acted and well written. And it's not a big, you know, world changing event or anything, but like that was one of the better movies that we that we did right for in, sure. the, in the podcast so that I, I think that that just kind of exemplifies the fact that no subject is terrible it's about how you tell the story absolutely and i guess what also didn't really it's so obvious but 
again, I just I think I was just focused on the fun of the time travel element in this movie that I never really thought too much about the themes. <laughs> but I mean, this movie yeah. is about nostalgia. Like I know that sounds right. obvious, but I never hadn't really kind of framed it that way and again it also is maybe the perfect end to this series of movies about world history through the lens of movies because that kind of has this nostalgia element to it where we look back to a movie made today set in a different age a movie made in a different age about that age or 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 the combo of both and we've kind of seen all of those possibilities and throughout the world and different parts of the world at different points in time and nostalgia is kind of playing into this whole whole project in a way because i mean nostalgia is kind of the love for history now maybe one's own history or one's own idea of different points in history but again i I think that kind of just you know wraps up what we've been doing with with this whole project maybe and so the, the film itself if you haven't seen it go watch it it is awesome i absolutely love this movie and it's only like an hour and a half and oh right and so it's super rewatchable i could again and it, it it flies by oh absolutely i could i could definitely just put this on repeat in the background forever and would be totally cool with that and <laughs> uh so owen wilson plays a writer a hollywood writer who would rather be writing novels because he's basically writing crappy movies that he makes a lot of money for but that's not fulfilling so he would rather write a novel and hopes he can make it that way but he's scared to show it to anybody, and he his wife is you know they're over in Paris having fun. He just wants to walk around town and just kind of reflect. He just loves the vibe of Paris. And one night he's just kind of lost and sitting by the side of the road, and this old car, 1920s style car or whatever, comes by, and they offer him a ride. And over the course of that trip with these people that picked him up, he realizes. They aren't just in an old car. We're not just at a party theme like the 1920s. I have literally traveled back in time to the 1920s. And the look on his face as he meets like uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and his wife Zelda. And then sees Cole Porter playing piano and Josephine Baker dancing. And it just kind of dawns on him like, wait, I'm literally in the 20s. That That is one thing that is kind of like, I don't know. It's kind of funny about this movie is how quickly he adjusts to... Oh, okay. I've literally time traveled, and I'm in the 1920s. But they now. deal with that because he tells his wife the next day when he's kind of, in, or sorry, his fiance the next day, Rachel McAdams, when he's kind of in a funk. He's like, he, he tries to yeah. get her to come with him the next night, and he's like, "You, you, you want to know why I've been acting weird? I'm gonna, sh- I'm gonna show you, and you're gonna wonder why I wasn't acting weirder." Like he basically says exactly that. Again, almost because he just can't, can't believe it himself. And then, yeah, so she, she gets bored of waiting because he doesn't realize it's at midnight when it happens. And we kind of see them drifting apart anyway. But, yeah, and then it's just so it's him meeting the characters, meeting Hemingway. And then he wants Hemingway to read his book. And Hemingway's like, no, but I'll give it to Gertrude Stein. And anyway, it's just him constantly meeting all these people. Now, he does meet a fictional character played by Marion Cotillard, who's kind of a, who's actually Pablo Picasso's girlfriend when he first meets her. And yes, she is kind of interesting. Basically, she's an invented character that just kind of gave uh, Woody Allen, the writer-director, an opportunity to connect a lot of, a lot of dots, I guess, and kind of, and obviously then give him a romantic interest and someone he could remove yeah. from the timeline, ultimately, who wouldn't affect history if he did so right again this is the first time i kind of started actually taking notes and researching some of the things she says so it is kind of interesting so she says she came to paris to to work with fashion in coco chanel and she actually moved to paris with uh the artist modigliani and right coco chanel nazi sympathizer 
Oh, <laughs> right. I forgot about that part. And then, so, but timeline-wise, it's interesting to see how it worked out. So, because she mentioned something, too, about her yeah. tragic story. Well, what they don't mention uh, specifically, you kind of have to know or look this stuff up. But she's just kind of assuming everyone knows, uh, because if you lived contemporary to them in the 20s, you would know. Uh, Modigliani died in 1920 at the age of 35. So the implication mm-hmm. is almost that she was dating him at that time and yeah. then, then got involved with uh, another artist named uh, Georges Brock and then finally Picasso. And then that's when she meets uh, Gil here. But the timeline kind of does all work because these guys were all in Paris in, in the 20s. And so was Hemingway. So was... Gertrude Stein. So was so were the Fitzgeralds. Like all these people really were yeah. in Paris in the 1920s. There was kind of this big movement of American expats in in Paris, and which you you might know more about this. But was there a was there a reason that they were all there? Like was there some movement that led them all there? Was it just because it was the end right after World War One, and they just all happened to be there? Um, or was it like they were all there before, and then like their being there together made them? or assisted them in becoming as famous as they were. Yeah, so my understanding is, like, if you want to be an actor, you go to Hollywood, right? So in 1920, if you wanted to be... If you wanted to be a writer you or went to Paris. artist, yeah. you go to Paris? It was oh, just okay. like, that was just the vibe. That was the community in the world that was best supporting it. So if you wanted to just be around all the other artists and writers, go to Paris because that's where they all were. So now we see it as a little more spread out but you still have people all the time that will go to new york or la to get into the entertainment industry so i think it was that if you wanted to be a creative person in the 1920s get your butt to paris and that's where it was happening i think it's kind of what it comes down to so most people are already kind of familiar with a lot of hemingway's work maybe even f scott fitzgerald like the one i kind of want to i don't want to go person by person because there's so many names they drop in oh. this movie it's ridiculous, yeah, it's but the, the one I wanted to ki- highlight here, because kind of because I was the most curious about her, I knew the least about her, and she's kind of has the biggest role is Gertrude Stein, mm-hmm. uh, played by Kathy Bates. But again, it does seem accurate. She was this American from Pittsburgh who moved to Paris and did set up this kind of they call it a salon where she was kind of home base. So if Paris is home base, she was kind of the home base within the home base. And right, it seems what they show in the movie with her house just being the meeting point for all these creative types. That was true. That she did kind of run yeah. this house that yep. was this this place where they would all and it all meet. it really was frequented by Picasso and Hemingway and Fitzgerald. Yep, and... yep. So yeah, what you see in the film does seem to be what you get, and they they don't necessarily hang a lantern on it either. But she was almost certainly a lesbian, and they even show her longtime partner uh who doesn't really have any lines but looks like this uh alice uh, toklas is portrayed in the film as like she answers the door from at one point when they when he's coming to gertrude's place but that does seem to be accurate she was uh, a writer in her own right and just kind of i guess known for being in the zeitgeist at the time a couple of lines of hers though are things we're familiar with her her two quotes she's uh known for are one a rose is a rose is a rose is a rose, which basically just means things are what they are. You can call them what they are. You don't need to use coded language or metaphor. Or just, you know, a rose is a rose. Like it's just things are what they are. Uh, and the other line mm-hmm. that I really don't know a good usage of, but I hear it and probably used it myself there is there is no there there. So if you're talking about something and you think maybe there's something going on, used in different ways, but there is no there there. That was Gertrude Stein. 
again, it's not like I've read any of her books or anything like that. But again, she was writing about sexuality and homosexuality, lesbianism in yeah. the early 1900s. And so that that's kind of interesting. But yeah, just kind of, uh, again, I think Kathy Bates playing her was probably the right call. And just an interesting woman who was uh, instrumental to the creative world in Paris at this time and kind of helping to highlight all of these artists. Again, it's also though too, even though I said we're pro- almost certainly in 1926 here, they don't name it in the film. And then also, he's not trying to make it a perfect history. So like the, the painting, obviously with Marion Cotillard's right. character being fictitious and the painting we the, see... The painting isn't real. Well, no, the painting is, that is a real Picasso. Um, oh, is it? But it's, uh, it's from 1928, so it was a couple years after. Oh, okay. And then also, it obviously wasn't off of this fictional character. But no, that that is an actual Picasso, but it's it's uh, from a couple years later. It's called Bather. Oh, okay. Uh, I did want to mention that uh, I'm pretty sure Adrian Brody was grown in a lab to play <laughs> Salvador Dali in a movie. <laughs> oh, because you, you look at the pictures of Dali, he looks so much like him, or what? Yeah, I mean, they, they both look exactly the same. I okay. mean, it's, it's crazy. And uh, that is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, when because Owen Wilson is talking to Dali, and then he has, there's the other... The other two guys, one of them yeah. is a Spanish filmmaker, and I think the other one is maybe another artist. Yeah, there's but they're yeah. all kind of they're all kind of like in the they're like pioneers in the surrealist movement. Yeah. So they make the scene even kind of goofy because and, of that, yeah. And Owen Wilson has tried to explain to them that he's a time traveler. He's like, Yeah, no, I'm I just I gotta tell somebody I'm a man out of time. I'm from the future. I've come back to this place. I know this sounds weird, and the guy's like no, that makes perfect sense. Like, I understand exactly what you're talking about. Because <laughs> he thinks he's just talking some, like, crazy surrealist stuff to him. But he's like, no, I, I'm literally a time right. traveler from the future. He's like, uh-huh, yeah, no, I get it. And those two guys, and I'm not familiar with their work. Uh, the one is uh, Louis Bunuel, who is a, a, a Spanish filmmaker who actually did get a couple Oscar nominations for writing later in, his, in, yeah. like, in like, the 70s. So way after this, obviously. And they heavily reference one of his movies, which I I looked it up and I really could. I've never yeah. I've never seen it. That was probably just a reference for Woody Allen himself, because like I couldn't even figure out what say, they're, think, exactly what they're talking yeah. about. So I think that was like a equivalent to uh, like when when Tarantino puts like obscure movie references. Oh, for and sure, stuff. right, right. And uh, and the other guy was an American named Man Ray. He was a serialist who kind of just uh, like you said, just immediately. Sound, says oh yeah what you're saying sounds sounds legit but honestly these, yeah. these are people i haven't heard of i'm not familiar with with their work i i, I don't even know obviously uh Bunuel was a filmmaker and actually sorry i say that Bunuel's movies i have heard of he had uh the the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie from 1972 was written and directed by uh Bunuel. so many almost 50 years after this yeah. So he's meeting him, obviously, for his grail. But yeah, Man Ray, I haven't seen any of his stuff. Yeah, so <laughs> anyway, so as far as the film, yeah, ultimately it's just kind of him figuring out. Basically, Marion Col- Cotillard's character, they kind of click so well. It makes him realize all the ways he doesn't click with his fiancée. She, and she's equally nostalgic about the uh, La Belle Puck, which actually just means kind of like the beautiful era or the golden era or whatever in, for, for yeah. Paris. I guess, and uh which for her is like the 1890s right it's and it's it's basically this is 1870 to 1914 so basically from 1872 right before world war one right, and then this right. era is like right after world war one right and kind of a, then in a parallel 
they see a carriage go by one night when they're hanging out in 1920s Paris, and they get in, and it takes them back to the 1880s, 1890s, where they run it, start running yeah. into people from that period, in, including uh, a right. Toulouse-Lautrec, who is also a character in uh, Moulin Rouge. And uh, Degas. Yeah, Degas, who's a, a kind of a pal with uh, uh, Vincent van Gogh. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, sorry, sorry, Gauguin and Degas, I got those confused, but yeah. Right, and then it shows that those guys are nostalgic for the Renaissance. Yep, yep. And that's that's kind of when Owen Wilson's character kind of then starts to put it all together that, hey, maybe this isn't the the answer and I should just try to be happy in my own time and make the best of it, which he ultimately does and decides to break up with his fiance. And that's kind of the film when he meets, uh, he kind of, yeah. they kind of imply that he'll start this relationship with the French girl he had met in the modern times because Marion Cotillard decides to stay back 30 years before her time and right. doesn't want to go back. And that's kind of also then what highlights for him why he should go back. Right. And the first time that I watched this movie, I thought up until about the last 30 minutes, I thought that it was it was all in his head. Oh, okay. Until they do show that there are... Because you don't see, like, yeah, he's interacting with these people, but there's no real, like, hard evidence True. that he's actually going back in time. Until, like, uh, he finds the diary of oh. Marion Cotillard's character. Right. That talks about, you know, oh, he gave me earrings and then we made love, which you know that it's not him making that up because it's being read by that tour guide woman who, side note to this side note, is Carla Bruni Sarkozy, former first lady of France. I didn't realize that until yesterday, even though I've seen this like five times. Yeah, yeah. They said it was her acting debut, which I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So she's the one who's actually reading it because he can't read French. So you know that, okay, she's... She's a third party, so that is actual evidence that it's, you know, that he is actually going back in time. Um, and then also, Rachel McAdams, the fiance, her dad is having Owen Wilson follow. By a detective. Right. And then he, he's, you're right, detective. And they're like, well, what did he find? He says, well, the, the detective actually disappeared. And then it cuts to him in like the 17th century in like a palace and he's like oh i'm sorry i must have taken the a wrong turn and the there's like these guards and powdered wigs and spears that are chasing him so i I mean i guess theoretically you could go back as far as you wanted as long as you're at that one place at midnight if you just stay there then (laughs) you can you know then get the carriage and then keep just keep going back right and yeah, that's of course they make it look like he accidentally got back there. So I'm curious how that all played out. But again, it's again, it's, yeah. it's not supposed to be <laughs> the the strictest thing. And right, I was trying to look up some of the stuff too. When uh, so oh, probably the closest thing to an antagonist in the film is Michael Sheen's character. Yeah, Michael Sheen's character, the, the insufferable douchebag. Yes, you know, honestly though, the the first thirty minutes or so. Pretty much every everyone is insufferable douchebags. Like even obviously Rachel McAdams is because she turns out that she ends up cheating on Owen Wilson. But even Owen Wilson at the beginning of the movie is like you're watching me just rolling your eyes like, oh, my God, like, shut up, dude. Like, no one cares. And Michael Sheen's fiance as well. And they're they're all like trying to out pretentious each other uh, like right, when they're right. talking about the you know, they're talking to the tour guide and when they're in the art museum and at the wine tasting and I don't disagree with all that. I, th- I talk about being able to watch it on a loop. Those are the tough parts to kind of get through for sure. And you yes. get annoyed with Michael Sheen's character. And so I wanted to look up to what extent was he full of it or not. Problem is it's, it's both. Cause after he's, he's obviously wrong when the, when the tour guide is trying to, you know, say, 
who was Rodan's mistress versus his wife. Uh, obviously, the tour guide mm-hmm. is right, and he is wrong. But some of the other stuff, I almost thought it'd be funnier if he was always wrong and that confident. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that, that that's not the case. Like, I even wrote down, like, he mentions that Louis moved to Versailles and made that the official palace in in 1682. Yeah, that was right. I, like, I was hoping he would say the wrong year. And it's like, nope, that's actually correct. So yeah, a lot of the stuff he was saying was probably correct, as much as I wanted him to be wrong. I think it would have been a funny joke to make him confidently wrong on everything. But right. he did seem to know some of his stuff. Um, although one thing, too, I wrote down, and I didn't research this again today, but I have heard this. So obviously, he's kind of annoyingly an expert on everything or a self-professed expert on everything. Yeah, and that's kind of like... It's- it's almost like a running joke that Rachel McAdams like, oh, he's actually an expert in French wine. Oh, he's actually an expert on Monet. He's actually an expert. In it's like five different things in the movies. Oh, actually, he's actually an expert. Right. In that. And so, yeah. So Owen Wilson has to like even like fake it at some points. He's like, well, I was reading a two volume biography on Rodin. It's like, yeah. And, and then and Rachel McAdams, called, when did you read a biography on Rodin? He's like, yeah, why he's would like, I do why that? Why would I read a biography? <laughs> <laughs> he's just trying to basically go chest to chest with this guy. But yeah. I heard it was on a podcast at one point, basically talking about how wine testing is BS and that they've done blind taste tests with even supposed experts who can't tell the cheap stuff from the expensive stuff with wine. And maybe that's just me yes. wanting to believe that's true because I, I think it all seems silly. But again, I've, I've heard studies quoted that, yeah, they're all, everyone's just kind of faking it with wine tasting, which is kind of silly. Right. If you think and about it. I, I, I don't disagree that there are people who have palates that are that sharp that can taste the, the tiny nuances and, and the differences. Yeah. But as far as like, oh, this is a cheap wine versus this an ex, is an expensive wine that it that has been shown to be like mostly bullshit. OK, <laughs> which, yeah, which is which is uh, which is funny. Which and, and that's I mean, that should be kind of obvious, though, because with anything like. Just because, you know, uh, whatever. Because it's just uh, a simple a, product. A bourbon, or even like a pizza. Just because a pizza is better doesn't mean it's more expensive. Right, right. And and also, wine is so, it's it's a relatively simple process. If you're talking about the fermentation of grapes, and which it, it's like beer is almost makes more sense because it's more complicated versus right. wine is like a simpler product. So cheap versus expensive was all just fermented grapes, right? <laughs> like at some point. What else? And I, yeah, I'm, and I don't know I'm enough. sure there are people who are going to be deeply offended by <laughs> yeah, that, but I, I agree with you. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> there's also there's, there's a relevant XKCD, which is of course its own running joke on Reddit. But and I, I didn't pull it up here, but basically they talk about given a long enough period of time focusing on winning any one thing, there's always going to be experts on it who break it down into more and more nuanced points. And so I forget the exact thing, but I think they start talking about like old ham sandwiches or something where if you're just if you're stuck if you're stuck in a room with these one things you're going to start to notice all the nuances and right. anything will inevitably develop its own super niche subculture and sure so yeah anyway there's that so yeah midnight in paris is a 93 percent on rotten tomatoes and won an oscar for best original screenplay was nominated for three others including best picture so great movie Definitely, I can see a few issues with it being kind of campy or with those annoying characters being just kind of too annoying. But I think it's a blast. Obviously, I would just love to see it all set back in 1920 and they just could just have the whole movie set in the 20s. But yeah, uh, that was kind of the framing device that they used. As far as obviously our timeline, 
we're not in the 1920s in our timeline. We are in the present. So yeah, I did. Well, I guess I guess mention here just the idea of uh, American expatriates and the idea of Americans living abroad, and that's something that you know still goes on today. And there's actually they don't keep hard and fast numbers on that, but it is estimated about nine million Americans live outside of the U.S. now, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of what he would be becoming here within the film. Yeah, Go- going back to the Oscars thing real fast. This is one of those times where. I think that I don't know if if this movie wins best picture this year but because it came out the same year as the artist that's like checks all the boxes for a movie that is going to win best picture like it's about making movies it's about Hollywood it's you know black and white so it's like super nostalgic it's almost like kind of exemplifying what Midnight in Paris is saying about nostalgia Oh right right it's <laughs> Midnight in Paris is kind of an homage so to the I artist. just thought that, that was kind of interesting that yeah, that that um any any movie that comes out that year is gonna have a hard time beating the artist. Right. But, I always remember too, because it was one where people didn't necessarily consider it a great, great movie, but I think I forget who the host was that year, but they basically said, like, huh, and the artist just made a really good movie that everybody likes. <laughs> it's just Yeah, it's just Hard to beat the movie that's just the most endearing film of the year, even if it's not the best film of the year. 2011 wasn't necessarily a strong year for movies. I mean, when you look at the rest of the the nominations, none of them are really that awesome. It's just a bunch of good movies, right? Yeah, so it it might be also a a kind of, you know, like a split vote thing. So, like, maybe everyone had the artist at, like, two or three. No one had it at their number one, but the number ones were diverse enough that... Right, exactly. And then something like Tree of Life that maybe a little more artsy, critically acclaimed kind of thing was too small mm-hmm. of a, probably had maybe a lot of, maybe, might have had the most number one votes, but not enough then number twos and threes to kind of then yeah. pass it overall. Yeah, anyway, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so yeah, I think that does kind of bring this world history through film project to to a close. And I think we kind of accomplished what we wanted to do. Again, just kind of a reminder, if, if you haven't you know, listened to the initial episodes of this project, the whole idea was to just look at world history in chronological order, one movie at a time. And it's an idea that first, first came to me just from watching movies with, say, British monarchs in them. And then you think about, oh, the monarch in this one is you know, the grandfather of the monarch in this one, specifically looking at things like Beckett into Braveheart into Robin Hood and how there's a connection with the kings in those movies being, you know, related. And so I kind of expanded that to world history, came up with a list of movies to kind of go through in order, even had the idea of, you know, it's like you could call it World History 101 or World History 100. And we have done, like we said, closer to 120 movies. But I do think if you go through, watch these films, it is a good overview of the human experience through world history. And that was what I wanted to accomplish with this. And if you've made it this far with us, uh, thank you so much. And just to kind of give you an idea of what we do want to do going forward here, Logan has talked me into doing an American History 100, but we're going to take a bit of a break before we launch into that. Ow, (laughs) Actually, we recorded all that last summer when we didn't yet know the plan. Now we have a much better idea of the plan, and we'll get into more detail with it a little later. But the main takeaway 
is we don't plan on going on hiatus like we have in the past. Right. We're going to have a couple kind of bonus things we're going to do um, between now and when we start our uh, American History 100. Um, that'll be coming out fall of 2022. But in the meantime, we're going to be doing a couple of other little bonus projects. So there actually is going to be no hiatus this time. And that'll be facilitated both by those projects and also the fact that we are going to be moving from releasing an episode every week to releasing an episode every other week. And there'll be bonus episodes sprinkled in there. uh, But every two weeks, there'll be a history and film episode. Right, which again sounds like less. But if you remember in the past, we've had basically a six-month hiatus of nothing other than maybe a recap episode, uh, which we are going to still do a recap episode here too. But yes, the idea is that we, for the next several years, do hope to not be, have to go on hiatus again, and we'll just have uh, two weeks between episodes uh, from here on out. So more history and film on its way, and we're going to detail that for you later. And thanks for listening, and we'll catch you later. Ow. <laughs> we did it! We did it! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm getting nostalgic. <laughs> <laughs>